I want to say a special thank you to the High Truth fan club. High Truth has nearly 23,000 downloads. Not bad for a doctor who pretends to be a podcast host. Feedspot, a news and blog reader, has published the Top 60 Addiction podcast and ranked High Truths on Drugs and Addiction as number 11. A special thank you to the High Truth listeners who came to the National Rx Summit in Atlanta this past week and made a point to introduce yourselves and tell me how much you enjoy and learn from the podcast. You guys made my day and gave me the grandest smile. Thank you so much. Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com. To learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative. NMI strives to dispel misconceptions about marijuana and raise awareness of the issues surrounding the drug so that citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices regarding marijuana use and regulations. Learn more about NMI at thenmi.org. Hello, everyone. Get ready for a down-to-the-gene and scientific episode of High Truths. I'm so grateful to join you for entertaining and informative conversations. I'm your host, Dr. Oni Lev. I want to share exciting news from California. I'm honored to have authored SB 864 that will require all hospitals to include fentanyl in drug testing. It's a no-brainer rule. If you are testing for PCP or cocaine, why not include a 75 Sent test for fentanyl. Fentanyl has cost more lives than COVID nationwide in ages 18 to 45. I have exciting other news from California, SB 1097, the Cannabis Right to Know Act. This will include consumer protection warning labels that includes issues of mental health and drug driving. It's not enough, but this will be the first piece of legislation aimed at protecting the public since marijuana has been legalized. The industry has gone unregulated for years, now introducing high-potency products and candies that the voters did not intend for. So if you're listening from California, send your senator a note that you support fentanyl testing and marijuana consumer protection. And now I want to start a lesson on DNA. And bear with me because my aim is to transform boring high school biology 
and turn you into genetic experts for your next dinner or lunch conversation. Let's start with DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA is the double helix genetic information that is the blueprint for us as humans and the blueprint for all organisms. DNA has 3 billion base pairs and is very long, about 2 meters if spread along a long thread. That long 2 meter DNA thread needs to fit inside a tiny little nucleus of every cell. To package that long DNA and make it fit into the nucleus, it is spooled and condensed into chromosomes. Chromosomes are threads of DNA wrapped around into a smaller space. And humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes or 46 total chromosomes that contain all of the DNA information. Genes are snippets of DNA, strands that carry the basis of inheritance. For example, we may have a gene for blue eyes or a gene for diabetes. These genes get passed along as we reproduce and have children. But as smart as we are in science, we still have not found all the genes for all the genetic problems. There are some genes identified related to alcohol addiction and cannabis-induced psychosis, but we still can't tell people that they have a specific gene for addiction. The best we can do is let you know or you would know if you have a family history of addiction. So let's review. DNA, the big, long, double helix that has a blueprint for everything about us. Chromosomes, 46 in total, that is all the DNA spooled and organized. And genes, they are the snippet of DNA found on different chromosomes and contain information like hair color. Genetic information is passed on to the next generation. And now you're experts, you got this. So let's add a few complications. Each time DNA replicates to make new DNA, it has to unwind that long double helix and then rewind again. Zipping and unzipping. And along the unwinding and rewinding, things can get messed up. Some chemicals and agents are known to mess things up. And what happens when the DNA code gets off its course? One of two things. One, it can have no noticeable effect at all. Hey, there are three billion base connection. What's one or two messed up sequences amongst friends? On the other hand, if the screw up of DNA sequence happens along an important piece of blueprint code, and it's a big enough problem, it can result in affecting the genes and result in cancers or birth defects. Chemicals that cause genotoxicity cause defects to the DNA code and to the genes and can result in clinical abnormalities. We're going to talk today about genotoxicity, and I wanted to make sure we have the basics. And with that, let's start our question of the day. Thank you, Dr. Lev, for this opportunity to participate on the High Truth Podcast. You're truly a wealth of information, and it's an honor that you so generously share it with the public for our benefit. My name is Becky Rapp, and I've personally gained much relevant information that's benefited my own family while listening. To tell you a little bit about our family, our youngest child came into our lives five years ago, and we have now assumed guardianship of him. His birth mother was a meth addict whose drug habit began in high school while using marijuana. I'd like to ask the question as to the effects of marijuana consumption on an unborn baby. Would consuming marijuana edibles while pregnant have more severe effects on the fetus? 
than if the mother vaped or smoked the drug. If marijuana edibles give the user a longer lasting high, does this mean the fetus is also receiving a similar high? And can this intensify the likelihood of mental health issues down the road for the unborn child? Thank you. Thank you, Becky, for your question and for being a High Truths fan. You pose a very difficult question, and I don't know that we're going to have a satisfying, concrete answer, but you give us a basis for a very interesting and important discussion. And for that discussion, I invited a physician and research scientist who is the world expert on the genotoxic effects of cannabis, Dr. Stuart Reese. Dr. Reese is a family physician from Brisbane, Australia, who specializes in medical treatment of drug addiction. He is a professor in the School of Psychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Western Australia. He has experience treating patients and does research on the genetic toxicity of drugs. You can find Dr. Stuart Reese's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Stuart Reese, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much, ma'am, for having me on your show. I'm very excited. Dr. Reese, I call you the world expert in cannabis genotoxicity research. You do research, but you are also a practicing physician. Can you tell us about your medical practice and how you came about to this particular line of research? Uh, yeah, well, um, yeah, I, I have a large practice in addiction medicine. We use a lot of buprenorphine. Um, Suboxone and Subutex and Buvidal, which is a long-acting injection, to help people with mainly opiate addiction, um, but other, you know, we, we treat a lot of addictions. We also treat general medical problems, uh, so we we have a family medical clinic, and um, you know, I was I was sort of interested in um, um, in addiction medicine for a long time, and then there's an Australian pioneer in naltrexone implants called Dr. George O'Neill, who works in Perth. And in 1997, I think, I went to visit him and was really inspired with what he was doing with naltrexone implants to get people off uh, heroin um, almost, you know, in a few days with the detox there. And so I got involved in, um, in addiction medicine. Uh, I was commissioned to do that by the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. Uh, and I, they sent me on a fact-finding mission, so I ended up in Perth. I was very inspired. And then my friends at the college sent me my first addicted patient and it just grew from there. And now we have um, probably the largest addiction practice in Queensland, which is the state where I work. Wow. So, um, so, and you, you know, so we did it, we started in opiate addiction and uh, we've worked with all the other addictions since then. We don't have much cocaine in Australia, so we don't do much with cocaine. Um, but um the uh, cannabis has become a big issue um, because the literature is very, um, you know, it's sort of six of one and half a dozen of the other. It's a quite a controversial literature. If you look at the cannabis cancer literature, there's papers on both sides. If you look at the cannabis birth defects literature, there's a whole spectrum of, um, you know, from negative findings to positive findings to a few positive to lots of positive. So it's, it's sort of, it's open and it's unclear. Uh, but cannabis is important because um, in this country, 99% of drug addiction start with cannabis. And if you talk to patients about where their addictive career started, it always, in this country, always started with uh, cannabis. Uh, there is another pathway 
to addiction, as you well know, in the US, you know, some people uh, are therapeutically addicted. They were given too much OxyContin or something after a, a knee operation or an orthopedic procedure. And so there is, there is a therapeutic pathway to addiction. In Australia, that's really little. It's only about 1%, 2% of the total population. But, um, but cannabis is foundational. And as I talk to my patients, uh, they, they tell me I'm, I'm wrong about cannabis. Uh, because I underestimated its damage, <laughs> and I, I said to oh. I said to one of, one of the ladies from the high cannabis area, um, you know, I'm I'm very concerned because we've we've spoken and written that maybe 10% of the cannabis affected babies from people who use cannabis regularly uh, could have brain damage or end up autistic or ADHD or on that spectrum, and so Dr. Rich, you're wrong. It's 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 50, 60, 70 percent of the people who smoke daily. And, and I said, you really think that? And she said, yes. So, um, so you know, it's like, uh, so cannabis is, is, is a big issue medically, obviously. It's, you know, it's on around the world for can cannabis. Um, it, it's a big issue medically. It's a big issue therapeutically. And obviously it's a big issue culturally and, and now commercially because it's been, uh, you know, people are investigating it at the commercial scale. And so when, when you say it's a big issue, do you mean a big issue in terms of harms or a big issue because of the commercialization and the use? Uh, in, in lots of ways. Uh, in, it's a big issue in terms of harms. It's a big issue culturally. One of the most scary things about cannabis is uh, dozens of articles demonstrate that there's an exponential dose response effect. In other words, at low dose, you don't see that much harm, but as the dose increases, all of a sudden you cross the threshold and and the the damage is everywhere so that's so we think that the, what's what's happened traditionally when cannabis has been relatively unavailable relatively unavailable is that the, the community being protected in that low toxicity area low neurotox low genotox area but uh we obviously with legalization you can smoke you can access as much as you want as often as you want uh, all day if you want and of course the products are more concentrated we everyone knows that uh so that you're all of a sudden you're launched you're almost jet propelled into the high toxicity area and that's what no one's really prepared for that's what no one's seen coming um that's that's the titanic uh sailing straight for the iceberg that that all our studies show it's very clear in the laboratory literature and we see a lot of reflections in that when we study these patterns of disease epidemiologically so as I said, for us, this is the Titanic headed to an iceberg at 100 miles an hour. We're very concerned about that. Yeah, and um, you, you're you're practicing in Australia, the land down under, and you you mentioned a little bit of how is addiction different in Australia compared to the United States? Because I, I think you are familiar with with how things are here in our country as well. Um, same type of drugs. Are you seeing? You know, you mentioned cannabis, you mentioned opioids. Are you seeing methamphetamines, um, uh, benzodiazepine addiction? Um, do you see it like all at once, like my patients? Yeah, yes, ma'am. That's that's what we see. Lots of benzos, uh, lots of um, lots of ice, lots of amphetamines, lots of crystal meth, uh, lots. Uh, you know, I mean, when my patients come to visit, uh, we they often bring their kids. There's lots and lots and lots of kids that are obviously not right in uh, in this group, and that's one of the reasons which which triggered. And that when I say they're not right, they're not right mentally. Obviously, they're not right mentally. They're intellectually impaired, uh, but a lot of them have heart defects. 
a lot of them had surgeries. A lot of the mums have lost multiple babies. A lot of uh, the kids have had heart surgery many times. Several of our patients' kids have died in heart surgery. It's th this is a really big issue. It, it's almost like the epidemic that's flying completely under the radar. Yeah. Nah, yes. Not even under the yeah under the radar and growing. Right. We we. Right. right. Um, so it's interesting because in my practice too, I, I like every, every single patient I ask them, you know, about their journey to drugs and it always starts with marijuana <clears throat> or cannabis. I thought you were going to say alcohol. Um, the people say, oh, people started alcohol, but I, you know, alcohol's there. But when I see people who are using fentanyl, um, or overdose from fentanyl, it's, it's from, it, they started with marijuana. Um, and are, are you seeing the same problems we are with fentanyl? Uh, fentanyl's uh, probably starting in Australia more. It's, fentanyl in this country is, um, uh, is, is derived from the patches. They get the patches and they extract it from the uh, fentanyl patches. So you don't um, have those fake pills of oxycodone, hydrocodone, Xanax? No. Yesterday, mm -hmm. just yesterday, I had a patient. He swore that he just used a Viagra pill, but it was 20 years old and it was from a pharmacy. He swore that it was just a Viagra pill. And he came in a huge serotonin reaction, sweating, heart rate of 160. Um, and he was positive for meth and fentanyl. And he just didn't understand how that could happen. It's like, well, you didn't get your pill from a pharmacy. I could promise you. <laughs> Um, but so now I want to get into your research, but first I want, um, if you could help Becky, Becky called into high truths and, um, she is raising, a um, a, a child from, from birth to now four or five years old, whose mom was addicted to cannabis and now the child is having some problems. And so she has several questions. She, she wants to know if there's a difference between edible and vaping smoking effects on an unborn child. Because Becky says she knows and reads about the edibles have longer effect, uh, staying in the liver longer, having a longer high than smoke pro um, products. And she's wondering if, if the mom was using more edibles than smoke, does that mean that the fetus was more effective? Um, well, what our literature shows, what our work shows is that it's... Um, it's related to cannabis and the total dose. Um, you're right that smoking can cause higher levels that don't last so long. But the thing with cannabis, especially if you're using it regularly, is it's got a very long half-life in the fat stores. It's fat, it's fat soluble. All the cannabinoids are lipid soluble, as you know. So it's stored for a long time in the, in the fat stores, so it builds up. And there's fat stores, obviously, in the skin, in the brain, and in the gonads, so the testis and the ovary. So... Um, it's you're right that the peak levels would be different, but but the issue is um, is is total concentration, especially the long term long term fat stores. So obviously there's all different ways to take cannabinoids, but it's really about the total accumulated dose, and <clears throat> particularly when it comes to baby development, is when in mm -hmm. um, gestation that exposure occurs because there's a lot of key developments happen during embryogenesis that are, are strictly timed and uh, obviously a cannabis exposure say when an arm is growing or, or a heart is forming or a brain is starting to grow uh, can interrupt key steps 
and uh, the developing embryo can never, sometimes never recover from some of those insults. So it's about total dose and it's about timing of those exposures. Right. So it's hard to answer Becky's question exactly. Um, we, we can say certain things for sure, right? We can say that whatever mom is smoking or using, uh, legal or illegal, whatever you're taking in a cup of coffee, baby's getting and the fetus is getting a cup of coffee. So we, we know that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, we also know that damage that we see is not always correlates, right? So we know about fetal alcohol syndrome, but not every mom who's an alcoholic has a baby that with fetal alcohol syndrome, but, but some, some are. And it depends on exactly what you said, Dr. Reese, it depends on the amount of alcohol and uh, when that alcohol or whatever drug hit the developing um, fetus. And we know that the first trimester of, of pregnancy is the most fragile as far as genetic complications from drugs. But we can't really answer Becky exactly because there's so many variables at play, right? We don't know uh, the potency of the uh, marijuana that the mom was using, the dosage, the quantity, the length of time, um, um, and the uh, genetic propensity for cannabis-related um, smoking. So, um, you know, I know when people have a problem, they so want like a, like a perfect scientific answer, and we don't always have that. Um, yes, ma'am, that, that's right. There's, there's a lot of genetic factors involved in all this because um, a lot of, it seems now that, like you mentioned fetal alcohol syndrome, there are reports in the literature that uh, a lot of that is mediated actually epigenetically, and it's actually mediated through the cannabinoid type 1 receptor. So a lot of the fetal alcohol stuff is actually coming through the cannabinoid receptor. Therefore, it's not a big leap in logic uh, to say, hang on, if alcohol can cause congenital anomalies, fetal alcohol syndrome, mediated by the CB1R, then maybe cannabis can uh, mediate a fetal cannabinoid syndrome, also mediated by the CB1R. So, yeah. Now, the other thing that we haven't mentioned so far is the metabolism of the cannabinoids. Um, so wait, wait can you be... explain what CD1R is since you mentioned that a few times? Sure. So that's the type 1 cannabinoid receptor, okay. which is the main cannabinoid receptor in the body. It's about 10 or 11 cannabinoids. So the, the, the cannabis molecule, the THC molecule, acts on the CB1 receptor, just like an mm -hmm. opioid would act on an opioid receptor, right? That's right. But that's you're right. saying that um, alcohol and fetal alcohol syndrome is related to that CB1 receptor as well? Yeah, that's right. Fetal alcohol syndrome can be mediated through that receptor, through the cannabinoid receptor. And that's the point. If, if alcohol can act through the type 1 cannabis receptor to cause congenital anomalies, then obviously cannabis can act through its receptor to generate the same sort of thing. But, but I was just going to say the epigenetic, everyone knows what DNA looks like, right? The long spiral helix. Yeah, but my listeners are experts now because I gave them a little lesson before you came on. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, DNA carries little switches on it, which is methylation, which turns the genes on and off because your body's got hundreds of different cell types, but the same DNA in every cell. So therefore, the way the DNA is used in each cell must be very different. And, um, and certainly in the brain and the way the genes even are arranged inside the nucleus of the cell is different for each cell for each function. And so that those signals on the genes which control the genes, the switches which turn it on and off, is called the epigenome, or which which is uh, Greek for on the genes, 
that, that control the genes on the genes or across the genes which control. That epigenetic machinery is also genetically determined, and so is the metabolic roots that excrete cannabinoids out of the, the body. Some of those are epigenetically uh, 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 genetically determined too. The, the activity of, of this uh, cytochrome P450 in the, in the liver that, is, uh, that metabolizes some of the cannabinoids is also a very genetic thing. So there's lots of inter-individual variation in this that'll create a different response. That, I mean, we sort of accept that. I mean, as you say, you're a practicing physician, each patient is different, you understand that. But what's concerning us at the population health level is legalization is gonna move the community from a low risk zone up into the high risk zone where all these serious issues move from rare to common. Right, and I think we're already uh, experiencing that, but we're just not tracking it, and that's a problem. It's under the radar and it's not being monitored. Yes, that's yeah. that issue. Like, like I mean, it's well known that there's an exponentially growing autistic epidemic of autistic spectrum disorder in the US, but it's, it's said that the reason for that is, is not clear. Uh, and it's not just about the diagnosis. That's been determined a lot of times. Um, but it could be that, there, see, if there was some neurotoxic activity or agent in the community, widely available in the community that was driving it, then uh, that was flying under the radar and not being tracked or given a free pass in the culture, then mm. that would make sense. And that's what I mentioned about cannabis. In, in, a, in, in a lot of places in the world, Australia, America, Europe, there's more people using cannabis. Uh, there's more people using cannabis daily. So the intensity of exposure is rising, which is a really big issue. It's up 2.1 times in the US on the latest figures. Um, and of course, the concentration of THC is, is higher. So you've got th at least three factors it dramatically, all at once, dramatically and greatly increasing community cannabinoid exposure, which could be producing this pattern of, of autistic, autistic epidemic. So you, you mentioned the three things are increased potency, increased um, use, and what was the other one? Increased intensity of daily use. Okay. Use and then quantity, right? All over, all over. Yeah. yeah. And, and see, because it's, 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 uh, it's, stores in the fat tissues, it, it accumulates. So if you're smoking every day, you really don't get a chance to excrete it. They reckon in habitual exposures, it takes six months, even longer uh, for the cannabis to, the cannabinoids to drain out of the fat stores. So if you're smoking every day, it's like you're always putting money in the bank and never taking any out. So, you know, and, and we've got to think about, hang on, this accumulates in the testis and the ovary in the male and the female and in the brain what are the effects, you know, and it's more concentrated now. So we're, we're actually jet propelling whole communities from a low cannabinoid exposure paradigm into a, a potentially very high cannabinoid exposure where these outcomes are very common. And Becky has another question um, about the child she's raising um, about mental health effects of her young child who now has some challenges and she's wondering if that's connected to mother's use. Well, I, I say that unfortunately it is, uh, probably it is, um, because um, for, for so many reasons, um, I mean, uh, there are so many, I mean, everyone knows that the human brain is much larger relatively than any other animal. And a lot of that 
increases in the forebrain and in the frontal lobes where there are a lot more cells than um, other uh, animals and so many more connections, which allows the forebrain to do a lot more complicated uh, computations. And that's supported by the cerebellum, which does a lot of the grunt work and other places in the brain as well. Um, Study after study identifies key brain genes which are responsible for increased cell numbers in the forebrain and the increased connectivity of those cells as being disrupted uh, by, by cannabis, cannabinoids epigene epigenetically. So often this is a direct effect, but also through gene regulation, through the epigenome. Now that's a big deal because if, if a baby is exposed uh, to cannabinoids which are acting directly then it will affect baby's brain growth due to the direct chemical effects of the blockade but if it's acting epigenetically then Can a you lot explain, of it just explain to us epigenetic that's those little codes the dna code right before the gene that turns things on and off that's what epigenetic means that's right ma'am it's like little switches that turn okay. the genes on and off it's it's the software right if you buy a computer you get a, a computer but it's got programs that might have Microsoft Office, it might have a browser, it might have Zoom, it's got programs. So the genes is the hardware, the genes is the computer, and the epigenome is the software that actually drives it. So genes mm. is the hardware and the epigenome, and the software is critically important. Of course, if we get a virus, it doesn't affect the hardware, it affects the software, and a computer can be useless, right? So, so this business of controlling the genes is, is huge. The other thing about the epigenome is it's inheritable not in all its segments, but in much of it, it is heritable. So that's the point. If cannabis is acting epigenetically, then it's not just damaging the baby. You're actually talking about multiple generations. We don't know how many generations. A lot of science suggests at least three or four generations, but they haven't done enough you know, generational experiments to say whether it's five or six or ten. We don't know that, but we think it's at least three or four. So if you're talking about multi-generational neurotoxicity and genotoxicity. And, and the point is that with cannabis and Becky and her question about the mental development, there are so many brain pathways that are, that are disrupted by cannabinoids in the developmental stage, both directly through chemical reaction and epigenetically, so therefore potentially multigenerationally, that, that it's, it's just weird and it's, it's just um, it's, it's, it's virtually impossible, we believe. To, to think that fetal cannabinoid exposure cannot be um, related where there's obvious defects. You know, I've, some of my patients have, um, you know, in their families got five or six kids and most of them are mentally affected by this. It's, it's, it's a big issue. Yeah. You know, there, there are studies that show that mothers who use marijuana while pregnant have increased likelihood of having children that have anxiety aggression and hyperactivity and that there's a link between maternal cannabis use and fetal brain development, just like you said. Um, using, you know, these are population studies. When it comes to an individual like Becky's young child um, that she's raising, you know, by that time, I don't know how you advise your patients, but I mean, damage is done and now you just need to provide love and support, um, you know, and think about prevention for other people. But when you have a person in front of you, um, what happened, you know, in your genetic and exposure history, that's not the baby's fault or, 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 or there's nothing Becky can do about it or that the baby can do about it now that he's growing. You could just, you know, have to provide as much love and support to, to that child. 
That's right, and mobilise community supports and everything that we need to do. I, I, don't, I don't know what the situation... In Australia, there is a school in Adelaide, which is in South Australia, which just has autistic kids. You think a school full of autistic kids. Now, could that have happened 20 years ago? No, that would not have happened in Australia 20 years ago. And I, I don't know what the st story is in the US, but you think now there is a school full of autistic kids. See, what you say is correct at the individual level and, and Australia has a lot of social supports and a lot of you know community supports that we mobilize to help these families which have so many problems that's true what what we're saying is that for us to knowingly mass produce this problem in a way that is there's no medical treatment is not acceptable and it is not ethical or moral it is unacceptable population health practice to to mass and we're not i mean we're, we're mentioning mental impairment right now but it's not just that it's a whole range of birth defects including chromosomal disorders i mean our studies show that 59 percent of the human genome which is 3,000 megabases is directly impacted by cannabis that, that's right. the genome that's the hardware you're doing i mean if you so, take a computer and cut off 60 percent that you've damaged your computer so you've done studies on this on genotoxicity and i think that i and the audience understand what that means genotoxicity means that the genes dna sequences are either like broken or the the links aren't done and they're cleavages and and so you have seen that in your research right so you're looking at actually strands of dna and and showing that that there are abnormalities in people who use cannabis is that what you're if you explain that what what you're seeing as far as genotoxicity all right well when i talk when i say 59 percent, i'm talking about three three uh groups of disorders okay i'm talking about uh chromosomal disorders uh which is inherited chromosomal toxicity right so you're talking about trisomy 21 which is down syndrome mm -hmm. trisomy 18 which is called edward syndrome trisomy uh 13 which is called patel syndrome uh, you're talking about Turner syndrome, which is, I mean, women have two X chromosomes, as I'm sure you know, and in Turner's, they just have one. You're talking about Kleinfelter syndrome, which is male XXY, so there's an extra X. Um, so if, if you put those, you know, you add the X and the Y and the 13 and the 18 and the, and the 21 together, uh, you get uh, a number which is 12% of the human genome, Okay. Uh, if you look at uh, testicular cancer, which has been linked in, uh, in a, I think, five, four or five studies now, um, I think it's five studies, uh, with cannabis, there's no question the director of NIDA uh, has written that cannabis is causally linked with testicular cancer. And that if you go to the testicular cancer literature, it is accepted, it is a fact that cannabis causes testicular cancer. Mm -hmm. And the relative rate is 2.6-fold increase. And if you add all the genes that are involved in uh, testicular cancer together, because testicular, we know uh, about what's called the pathogenesis of testicular cancer, how you make a, test, a testicle tumour, um, you, you, the, there are about 11 chromosomes, chromosome 12 and 10 others that are involved in that. And that's about 40% of the genome involved in, in just in testicular cancer. And the other cancer that's, uh, another cancer that's been linked with um, cannabis recently in our studies is acute lymphoid leukemia which is the commonest cancer in early childhood uh, and i think they're about uh, it's about 20 percent of the genome is linked in the chromosomal disruptions in in these leukemias and and these these are these are chromosomal cancer in fact 
the pathogenesis of testicular cancer is complex and it's fascinating. The whole genome inside inside the egg inside the egg and the sperm is completely doubled. And then to make these cancers, they cut off, they remove 70 chromosomal arms. And in case of cannabis, if you say that the average age of cannabinoid cannabis exposure is about 20, give or take, you know, because people start in their teenagers and early 20s. So you say it's 20. The median age of testicular cancer is about 33. So that means that the age of the incubation period for testicular cancer in cannabis exposed males is from 20 years to 33, which is 13 years. Now, the normal incubation period in, in males generally is, is 33 years from zero to 33, and the changes start in utero. So it's a 33. So that reduces from 33 years to 13 years. That reduces incubation period 2.5 times. Now, I said to you that the increased incidence of testicular cancer in cannabis exposure is 2.6 times the, the frequency. If you multiply 2.5 by 2.6, you get 6.5. So in other words, cannabis is inducing the testicular cancer 6.5 times quicker than the control. And the steps involved in, in testicular carcinogenesis the DNA gets demethylated. All the little switches on the DNA we talked about, they all get removed. The genome gets doubled once or twice that we said. Then 80, 50 to 70 chromosomal arms are removed or excised. So that's cutting off 70 chromosomal arms, all in this period of 13 years. And, and of course, that produces a, a cancer cell, which multiplies, which becomes a clone, which becomes dominant. And that's how you get your cancer. So all of that happens really quickly. And there are actually cycles inside dividing cells that will divide the, the, um, the chromosomal arms cyclically with each cell division. That's called the breakage fusion bridge cycle. And that's why it takes 13 years because the cells have to divide and so So it's fast, but it's extraordinary to us that 70 chromosomal arms can be removed in quick time at 6.5 times the background rate by cannabis. That's massive genotoxic damage. So if you add those three groups of chromosomal disorders that I've talked about, the testicular cancer, the acute lymphoid leukemia, and the uh, chromosomal disorders, you get uh, 1,754 megabases of DNA are involved. That's how long those chromosomes are. Of the 3,000 megabases of human genome DNA, that's 59%. And that, that is direct damage. Just like I said, cutting 60% of your computer off. Is your computer going to work fine after that? That's not going to work very well. Right. So you, you shared a, a fascinating picture in one of your presentations that I um, got to see of uh, sperm. And you had a picture of sperm um, of someone who uses alcohol and tobacco and compared it to sperm of someone who uses marijuana. And you were able to, to show physically how that sperm is effective. And or how it's affected. And and it's interesting because you say, just like, you know, can, cannabis, unlike alcohol or tobacco, lives in the fat cells. One of those fat cells are the gonads or testes where the sperm are uh, swimming around and reproducing every um, 64 days. And so knowing that, understanding that, it's I, I see why uh, testicular cancer is... A, 
2.5, 2.6 higher rate than in cannabis users versus people who don't use cannabis. Can you can you tell us about that those those little uh, swimming sperms and and how they're effective and what yeah. that means? Yeah, well, that's that's uh, a very fast, very fascinating issue. Um, the the figure that you're talking about comes uh, it's from the work of Gabriel Nahas and Zimmerman, uh, published in 1999 in in their authoritative book on that subject. It's a it's a fascinating photomicrograph. Uh, it's, I'm I'm interested that you've noticed that 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 photo. My patients think it's fascinating as well. Uh, I've showed it to a number. Uh, the the photo shows uh, normal human sperm in is panel A and panel B. Panel A is normal human sperm. And they look a lot like tadpoles, right? Little heads with long curly, curvy tails swimming happily around the microscope slide, which is what sperm, we all think sperm do. Um, the cannabis uh, exposed sperm is a different story altogether. Uh, in that photo, um, the, uh, there's a front and center in the photo is a big pus cell, which is, shows inflammation in the testis. And then the, the test, the, the, the sperm head, some of those sperm have three or four heads, partial heads, uh, they have three or four tails. The tails aren't curved like sort of snake-like. They're a lot of them are like they're like a step. They're like a zig, zig, zigzag puzzle, right? Um, some of them have three and four tails. Some of the sperm is tangled. There's protonaceous uh, goop, which is sort of on the slide as well. So the the sperm look actually shocking. Uh, and I've showed it to a lot of young ladies and said, you know, do you want to make babies with that? And they just go like that. No thanks. <laughs> so. So there's there's frank sperm sperm damage um, as well, uh, which so that the sperm um, they don't look normal, they don't function normally. Uh, they 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 look obviously grossly deformed sperm. And you know, men and women are different. So men um, produce sperm, new sperm, their whole life till till they die. Um, you know, every 64 days is about the lifespan of sperms. So, you know, if you used alcohol, drugs, cannabis, you know, you can, you know, stay clear of that and make some new fresh sperm. But women are different. They have this, you're born as a baby girl with the exact number of eggs your entire life. Um, is there is there similar damage to eggs from cannabis use, or is it mostly men? Um, well, that's that, that's uh, that's a very good question, Renee. Thank you for your question. Because I um, only see that with men. I, I figured you know the women are as long as they're you know born okay that their eggs don't get messed up because it's the same egg you were born with, and it, so it's really men who are passing on the problems <laughs> blame it on the men <laughs> and your boyfriends are useful, useful for something <laughs> um the um uh well not well no not really um okay. the uh the egg is uh, you're right women are born with their eggs but they lose a lot of eggs. I mean, a, a female baby is born with a million eggs in her ovaries. By the time she has a first menstrual cycle, she's only got 400,000 left. And she loses uh, a lot, maybe around 100 with each cycle. Uh, so that's why when she hits about 45, she's run out of eggs. Uh, the, um, there are horrific 
pictures in the scientific literature of um, eggs which are grossly uh, genetically damaged by cannabis. Um, and obviously eggs have to divide. That's one of their um, roles. One of the big concerns, this point is a little, a little uh, controversial in the literature, but one of the concerns is that uh, an egg is, is not entirely dormant. I mean, they, they sit there and wait until, you know, that term comes with the cycle, but, um, and that their, uh, their genetic protection machinery, that the genes are, have a protective machinery, the epigenome has protected, is compromised, is weak in the eggs. So when they get a gene toxic insult, they can't deal with, they can't repair properly or very well. So that's a big issue. Um, there was a, a classic study. This was a NIDA study published by a NIDA research, researcher in, a, in the NIDA research monograph. So it's an NIH study by an NIH researcher published in the NIH literature in uh, 1981 by Morishima. And uh, it, it showed cells which couldn't divide. Morishima actually showed that after cannabis exposure, and I think it was quite, quite light cannabis exposure, it was only a few puffs of, of cannabis smoke. Uh, some weeks after that, uh, when the egg divided, 20% of those eggs died after one cell division. You had 20% of oocyte loss after one cell division. I mean, that is, is mind-blowing when you consider how many cell divisions are involved in making a baby. You're going to lose... There's my, and the photomicrographs he published, the photos of dividing cells he published were shocking. You've got uh, one of the big, see, if you think about what I was talking about a moment ago about trisomies, right, that the babies are born with extra chromosomes or one less chromosome, which is mm -hmm. what Turner's is, right? Obviously, there is an issue with chromosomes not separating properly uh, under the influence of cannabis. This is clinically apparent. These are clinical disorders with extra chromosomes or less chromosomes and all. So there's a, a big issue here with chromosomes not separating. And Morishima's photomicrographs showed that, that when the cells divided, there were bridges of uh, DNA across both cells because the chromosomes hadn't divided. Now, that is a huge issue because it, it, it's describing major uh, disruption and damage of the machinery of cell division and those, that chromosome will then be smashed, uh, physically broken by the two cells falling apart. And the chromosome ends are, are then broken, which then stick to usually another chromosome end aberrantly wrongly, which causes more breakage and more fusion and more, so you're actually cycling your genetic damage. And he, you know, there are, there are, it's called the breakage fusion bridge cycle. There are photos of multiple because obviously cells normally divide into two cells. Everybody knows that, right? But in his, in his photos, you got cells dividing into three and four different groups and little bits of chromosomes breaking off. Now, the broken bits that break off, they become a genetic time bomb because due to the normal cell processes, the, the microchromosomes can get smashed as the, as the DNA is replicated and, and um, transcribed. It, it, it gets smashed, it becomes genetic junk, and then it becomes like a virus inside the cell which goes into the DNA anywhere and trashes the DNA. So this is called micronucleus damage. We've known for 50 years that cannabis causes micronucleus formation. I, I, like, your, I like your computer analogy because I could see that. It's like getting a virus in your software, you know, like we don't know how it's going to just screw things up somehow. 
That's right. That, that's right. That's right. So, so we know the micronucleus formation is linked with mental retardation, birth defects, and cancer because it's a major engine for genotoxic damage. So, uh, so the the story with with eggs and ovaries and females and oocytes and genetic damage and epigenetic damage is really scary. Yeah. Right. In, in other words, in other words, I get it. The sperm and the egg. You can't blame yeah, it all on the men. And the female, and, and it is it reads like a horror movie when you actually study the science. It it sounds like it. You, you know, we're we're talking during a pandemic with COVID, and the whole world is like COVID, COVID, COVID all day long. Um, there's a new antiviral for treating COVID, malnupiravir. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, and it comes with a really strong warning about teratogenicity. And it actually says that if you're gonna take this. Um, antiviral malnupiravir for COVID, that it has to come with a warning to men and women um, of reproductive age and to use contraception and also not to reproduce for at least three months after the last dose of taking this antiviral medication. And that's from an antiviral medicine that has teratogenicity. And I'm just thinking to myself, because I know your research, that Shouldn't cannabis come with the same warning? Absolutely, of course it should. It's it's our study shows much more potent than alcohol and tobacco, and it should it should be regulated like all major genotoxins. In fact, I could just tell you a little story about that. Uh, a lot of teenagers have acne. I mean, some of my American friends say one hundred percent of our young people have skin problems, right? Right. And I don't know what the rules are about prescribing uh, isoretinoin or retinoic acid or vitamin A in the US, but in Australia, ordinary family physicians are not allowed to prescribe uh, retinoic acid. Uh, only dermatologists are allowed to prescribe that because of the genotoxic risk. Right, and you also right. have to sign an agreement. Both men and women have to, in yeah. order to get this retin-A, um, um, you know, uh, acne treatment, you sign that you will not get pregnant. That, that's right. That's right. And um, and the 12 weeks that you mentioned, I mean, that's the 77 day human sperm cycle. That's mm -hmm. 11 weeks. That, mm -hmm. That's what they're talking about. That's yeah. why this is what they're talking about. And in fact, in Australia, it's so ridiculous. Um, two feet off the ground in the supermarkets. Right. They, they had cannabis, uh, they had cannabis, cannabis herbs. It was right beside the kids gummy bears. The kids were brightly colored. Right. And it's got the genotoxic warning on the label, right? Don't have, don't have it if you're going to have pregnant. Don't have it if you're a mother. Don't have it if you're a father. Don't do breastfeeding. It's a gender on the label, completely unrestricted in the supermarket shelves. And that's the genotoxic warning right there. Anyway, um, I was talking about the vitamin A. In, in Australia, we're only allowed to take that from dermatologists, right? Ordinary doctors can't prescribe. Um, now, here's the kicker. There's, I mean, I, I read nature and science like most people read the Washington Post or New York Times, but mm -hmm. they're the journals I like to read. Mm -hmm. And as you read those journals, you discover, hey, there's a gene over here, which is what controls a human brain and it makes a human brain big and it forms all the connections. And then you go to the list of genes that are damaged by um, the epigenome, they're damaged by cannabis, and there's their gene right there. And this happens over and over and over and over again with so many of the, the new papers in nature and science, the latest papers, the very cutting edge, are on the hit list of cannabis epigenetic damage. Now, the thing is that one of those papers recently showed that the, the connectivity in a lot of cells in the forebrain is due to a vitamin A gradient. Right? It's a vitamin A gradient. We're talking about retinoic acid. Retinoic acid is one of the major human morphogens that control body formation, the, the knitting process of knitting all the 
structures together. And the, the point was there's a high retinoic acid gradient at the frontal pole, which is generated locally by my enzymes, and it's low at the premotor cortex at the back, the motor part of the brain that controls your movements. So there's a gradient that controls increased cell numbers, the increased connectivity. And if you go to the epigenome list that I mentioned recently published by North Carolina, you, you discover that the cannabis stops the high gradient at the front, stops the low gradient at the back, and it, it, uh, and it interferes directly with the retinoic acid in the middle. So th this, is, this is a craziness. I don't I'm know saying? if I see completely retinoic what you're saying, but you're saying you've, I, there have been a bunch of genes identified that are important in you know, programming the brain. And those same genes are affected by cannabis, both in the epigenetic, the turning on and off switch, in the middle where the retinin A, vitamin A is acting, and, and everywhere. So it's, it's probably more alarming than this, the, than the new COVID antiviral medicine or the, you know, dermatology treatment for, for people. And yet there's no warnings. And, and so that would maybe bring us to the next thing is, if this is true, what you're saying, you know, that, 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 you know, there's all this damage to the DNA and all these people are using it uh, at the three levels that you mentioned, there's uh, more potency, more use and more frequency of use. That means that we should be seeing more birth defects um, throughout, throughout wherever cannabis is used. Is that true? Um. Or is it still at the DNA level that, and it's not expressed? We don't see it clinically at this well, generation. Well, well, hang on. The um, I did. I didn't say uh, cannabis affects many birth defects, but it doesn't affect all of them. In the same way that tobacco causes lung cancer, but doesn't cause all cancers, right? I think tobacco at CDC is linked with sixteen or seventeen cancers, but it's not linked with all of them. And I think we would say the same about cannabis. Um, and in America. The, the CDC, they don't have, a, they, they've tracked about six, they track 45 birth defects now, right now, longitudinally across the US. But in the last, um, since about 2005, they've tracked 62 birth defects, right? But, but there is no category called all, all birth defects. So you can't actually answer that question directly, are all birth defects. But in Europe, you can. Uh, they do have, I've got the European data as well. They do track that. And yes, in Europe, all birth defect is related to various measures of cannabis use. Um, Wait, so, so say, can you say that again? So in Europe, you have seen an increased number of birth defects and have yeah. an association with cannabis? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And in, um, and in the, for the CDC, they track various individual birth defects. They don't track them as a whole. Can, is there an association with cannabis with some of the birth defects? Or Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma Our studies show 45 out of the 62 birth defects tracked by the US, uh, by CDC, can be linked to different cannabis metric exposures, yes. Can you tell us, an, can you give us an example? Yeah, yeah, a lot of heart defects, a lot of chromosomal defects, a lot of gastrointestinal defects, a lot of uh, urinephrology defects, uh, a lot of body wall defects. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the chromosomal disorders I mentioned a minute ago, Down syndrome, Edwards syndrome, Patel syndrome, uh, Turner syndrome. But you have to understand in the US, uh, if, if there's a thing called therapeutic abortion, okay? If a mother, because all the women have ultrasounds, 
And if a baby is abnormal, either the doctor or the patient will choose for therapeutic termination. They terminate the pregnancy. And those numbers are not directly accounted for in the CDC data. You understand? Now that's a major, it's a major confounding factor. So when you look at the US figures, you have to use estimates from the literature and guess. But when you go to Europe, that number is known, right? The, the therapeutic abortion number is known. So Europe actually gives the data. So the, the Europe data is, is more detailed and they actually track 95 birth defects. In Europe, of those 95, we've linked uh, 89 birth defects of the 95 in Europe with different measures of cannabis exposure. And cannabis, there's a lot of measures of cannabis exposure in Europe. So measuring in Europe but is complicated. Dr. East, there's a lot of people who are now maybe listening and hear, well, I have a child that has Down syndrome and they're a beautiful child. You know, mom and dad didn't use cannabis. What are, what are you talking about? No, I'm not saying that that uh, Down syndrome is always caused by cannabis. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that it increases the risk. Because if you understand what I said, one of the, the screaming, the points that come screaming through all these analysis, we've done Down syndrome links with cannabis in Colorado, in Hawaii, in Canada, in the US, uh, in Australia, uh, and in Europe. So can explain that more. So there may be a lot of you know parents out there who are raising children with Down syndrome. They never used cannabis. But what you're saying is because of increased cannabis use, we have more Down syndrome overall in the population, and some of those are associated with cannabis use? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Because the point about cannabis is that it, it messes up this issue of chromosomal separation. That's why some cells have an extra chromosome and some cells have one less because it's messing up this chromosomal separation issue. And that's been known for a long time. That's what the, the, uh, the, the microchromosome, the micronuclei are. It's a chromosome that's got separated from the main, main chromosomal mass and has now formed its own nucleus and becomes a genetic time bomb. But we've known that for ages and ages and ages. It's messing up the separation. So that's what you'd expect. You'd expect to see cells with an extra chromosome and cells without one. I am, as you say, I am not saying that all Down syndrome due to cannabis. Absolutely, that's that's never, an, never an issue. But the point is, the frequency is much higher. So we have. Are you saying we have more um, kids with Down syndrome today than we did uh, before uh, marijuana legalization? And uh, yes, that's what I'm saying. But you have to understand, you have to factor in this therapeutic abortion thing, right? In, in West Australia, they have a very good birth defects registry. They've got three times more Down syndrome uh, over the last 30 years. Uh, but, but the number of live-born Downs hasn't changed very much. What skyrocketed is these abortions for Downs. And then when you add those two together, you see this threefold, right? It's a massive effect because there you've got the hidden numbers. In Europe, you've got the hidden numbers. In America, it's, it's, the CDC doesn't give us that abortion figure, right? So you have to approximate a bit. But, I, I um, Yeah. Okay, so... Um... Basically, you're saying, and I've heard you say this before, that cannabis can weed whack your DNA, cutting it up and, and causing problems. And on the same, the same kind of analogy um, that you said with Down syndrome, you're saying with autism, right? That you have, it's not like a, a parent raising a child with autism. That does not mean that the mom or dad were using cannabis when they conceived. Um, but if we look at the population as a whole, we have way more 
kids with autism, just like the school you mentioned in Australia, and a lot more marijuana use. And that connect, that's how you're making that connection. Is that right? Or do you see it actually at the DNA level? Uh, no, it's a population level observation, mm-hmm. as you say. Yeah. Um, and and uh, see, the, the, the scary thing is um, that in, in, in some parts of the world, we think in parts of America and parts of Europe, the cannabis is in the food chain. Right in, in parts of France, they, they've got lots large cannabis farms, hectares and hectares of cannabis. The cows are being born with no legs, and the human babies are being born with no limbs, and that's happening 60 times. It's reported 60 times above the background rate. Now, it, assuming uh, presumably the cannabis cannabinoids are getting into the food chain either through the water table or through the being fed to cattle, like hemp is fed to cattle as cattle feed, and then the people are eating the, the, the milk or the meat or the chickens or the eggs or the ham, whatever it is. Uh, so that even people who don't use cannabis can be exposed. And that's a huge concern mm-hmm. to pregnant women, to babies who are developing their brain, and to adolescents who are going through that brain development. If, if it's in the food chain, then the, the whole community is exposed to this, and people don't, don't even know. I mean, Melbourne's a fascinating case study. The, the leading, there's a, there's a conglomeration of, uh, or a, an association of birth defects registries internationally that's run from Rome. And so they've got about 100, I think, or more birth defects registries reports from Rome. And they did a big report on no, no arms, no legs, right? And there's, there's one for Amelia, which is no limbs in Latin. And there's one for Focamelia in, La, uh, in, in, uh, in Latin, which means flipper limbs, right? Which is where there's a hand stuck to the shoulder and no upper and lower segment of the arm. And, uh, and, the, the city that was top of the pops in both reports is Melbourne, which is in Australia. Now, that's interesting because Melbourne's a very migrant city. There's a lot of people from Europe and all over. And in their home countries, they don't have all this limblessness developing. Wait, are, are you, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. There's a study in, in Melbourne that shows that you have an increased number of birth defects related to having problems with limbs, babies born with genetic abnormalities of of missing or um, not complete limb development. Is that, and, and that's highest in Melbourne compared to other cities in Australia? Uh, well, sort of, yeah. If I could just restate that, this, this, there are two studies, one of no limbs and one of flipper limbs, okay? They're international studies with all the, all the birth defects in the world who reported data to Rome. This is in an international study, it's not an Australian study. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at, at the study with no limbs or the study with the flipper limbs, there's only one city that's at the top of the list in both studies. This is an international study, and that's Melbourne in Australia. Right? And the point is that the, the, the countries those people come from, which are mostly Europe, do not have this high rate of no limbs. Is it could be that Melbourne's just better at reporting than other places? Uh no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think there's any evidence to support that. No, I don't. I don't think that. that so is. why why would Melbourne be disproportionately affected by well, these well, type that, of births? Well, that suggests defects. there's an environmental factor operating in Melbourne, and it's not genetic. And I know that some of those cases they're 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 quite famous uh, now. Live in California, actually, um, and uh, they've had a lot of kids who are also not affected. In fact, one of them's had five kids who've got 20 limbs between them. So all their arms and legs are where they should be. There's something in Melbourne, and Melbourne is surrounded by cannabis farms, right? And it, it must be getting in the water table in the food chain. So 
So the point is that if this is a known genotoxin or neurotoxin, we're giving it a free pass in our culture and it's getting in the food chain. And see the same thing in, in um, parts of the US, right? In, uh, but if that was true, then I'd expect California to have the most problem with you know birth defects or Colorado. Yeah, well, well, if you look at Colorado, we, we look, we've analyzed the Colorado pattern, right? They had, an, in the decade of legalization, the, whole, the total population didn't change. The number of birth defects went up, 20, went up 30%. There was an extra 20,000 birth defects beyond what you would expect at the baseline rate. So we That's do have that in Colorado. Colorado has a 30% increase in birth defects. No, you have a, uh, yeah, there were 60,000 is what you'd expect, and there were 80,000, so there's an extra 20,000 birth defects. Right, that's that's disastrous, right? Now, now, and and you see, in other states, you'd expect. Well, what about Washington and Oregon uh, states in the U.S. where it's been legalized? And the answer is uh, the data from um, Washington, I think, has. I mean, off the top of my head, has no birth defect data contributed to this CDC thing that I'm getting. And Oregon has it for a couple of years with almost no data. So the places you most want to see, you actually can't study. The Californian data is there a bit, but it's. It's quite. It's relatively fragmentary. It's incomplete. Um, and remember that we we don't have the key index for that, which is the abortion number. So some some of the places we're most interested in, like Washington and and stuff like that, uh, we actually there is no data. So, uh, but what concerns me is in um, Kentucky and Mississippi in the U.S. the background rate of atrial septal defect, which is a hole in your heart. Uh, in the US is about 20 or 30 per 10,000, right? In those places, it's two to 300 per 100,000. And it's gone up really, really quickly uh, in the last couple of years. Uh-huh. And, um, and we worried that in, in parts of the Midwest, there was a US Farm Act, which was a million, million dollars US, uh, which replaced uh, the tobacco farms because of the tobacco class action with cannabis farms. So is it in the food chain? Is that what's causing it? Because there's atrial septal defect has been linked with cannabis use in lots of studies, Canada and, and America and Australia and, and Europe and a lot of places. So it's it, So you're it, saying overall in the United States, the incidence of atrial septal defect has gone up for whatever reason? Uh, oh, I'd have to check the data on that. Um, but but in, in, a, in, a, in the high cannabis use states, yes, it's gone up. Wow. Okay, this conversation is giving me a stomach ache. <laughs> I don't. I mean, if it's hard for me to hear, I can imagine that it's really hard for the rest of America to hear. Um, but I, I think we mentioned cancers, so I think we should like touch on that as well because one of your publications you've shown a, a terrible increase in pediatric cancers um, going along with the increased use of cannabis use. Can you just tell us about about what what's going on with pediatric cancers? Yeah, well, that's the same thing. See, pediatric cancer rate in the U.S. has risen uh, about 50% from uh, 1975 when CDC started collecting records. And that's a pretty big jump in a nationwide epidemic with good stats. So that's a big worry. And the question is, obviously, why? And the answer for that isn't known. Uh, But cannabis use has risen. And cannabis has been linked with uh, with four cancers uh, in in, in kids, um, rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a muscle cancer, neuroblastoma, which is an adrenal tumor, um, acute myeloid leukemia, which is a, a leukemia kids get, and acute lymphoid leukemia. Now, acute lymphoid leukemia is the commonest cancer in kids less than five. So, um, 
so the question was, is increased cannabis uh, driving the rise in, uh, in acute lymphoid leukemia? And the answer is we found yes, uh, in a causal analysis framework and also in a space-time analysis framework. Uh, and so does it apply to pediatric cancer overall? And the answer was yes, it does in a causal analysis framework and in a space-time analysis framework. Um, and that's a big deal because it's not like saying cannabis causes or tobacco causes lung cancer in people who are exposed because pediatric cancer is really reflects inherited uh, genetic damage passed to the next generation. It's, it's known in medicine that, that pediatric cancer, I mean, most cancers are cancers of old age due to accumulated genetic damage. But pediatric cancer, they don't have time to do that. They've got to inherit the genetic damage from their parents. So pediatric cancer is inherited cancer. So to say that, cannabis that drives a pediatric cancer epidemic uh, or 50% rise is actually saying this is an inherited genotoxic problem, which again gets back to the birth defect. It's not just a birth defect you're inheriting now, it's a cancer you're inheriting. So it's mutagenesis, teratogenesis, and carcinogenesis all in one. So it's it's very serious, but this is why this is why we're so concerned about contamination of the food chain trivialization of cannabis genotoxicity and neurotoxicity and people not understanding this step step function in the in the dose response of cannabis genotox and neurotox to the rising rate the exponentiation uh, at the higher levels because it means the community is setting itself up for a fall which no one sees coming so we know the public generally knows some genetic links of cancer, like, you know, women who've had breast cancer know about the BRCA gene, right? And, and certain cancers, we know the Philadelphia chromosome for some, um, so from some cancers. Is, is there a genetic association with some of these pediatric cancers, the, the ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia and acute myelocytic leukemia? Is there a gene for that? Can you actually see it and yes, trace no. it? Yeah, yeah, you can. Those, those two cancers are chromosomal translocations. They're known to be chromosomal translocations. You know, we, as you say, we've reported uh, ALL, acute lymphoid leukemia, and there are, there are about four or five most common translocations. Now, translocation is the joining of the chromosomes together, and you can see this under the microscope, and you can study it, and there are clinical labs do the studies and report it. And this is the stickiness in the broken chromosomes on the end. And this is what we've been talking about, that cannabis messes up chromosomal separation in a big way, in a way that's, that's inheritable. So we actually see it at that level. And so when they diagnose ALL, they don't just diagnose ALL, they diagnose ALL with this specific translocation, which might be a translocation between chromosome four and chromosome 10. That's exactly what we're talking about, the stickiness, the broken chromosomes, and, and the translocation, the non-disjunctions and the missegregation. Wow. Dr. Wiesa, that's a lot to uh, take in and absorb, um, you know, on a, on a you know genetic level and then a population level. So I want to uh, end this by um, by going back to Becky, who's doing such a you know wonderful thing, raising uh, a child who um, couldn't be raised by her own mother, um, and and has some challenges. So, what is your final advice to Becky as as a clinician? Um, um, as she, you know, faces these challenges? Uh, well, I think for Becky, it's all about support. It's all about support in the short term and it's all about support in the long term. And it's all about the community gathering together and helping Becky. But the flip side of, of, of that is 
doing everything that we can to not mass produce Beckys and, and people who need surrogate mothers because their mum can't take care of the little one. So, so there's both an individual doctor-patient issue, which is about support and mobilising the community to help, but the public health uh, ramifications. You know, think about what I told you about my patient. Dr. Reese, you're wrong. It's 70 or 80% of these kids are neurologically effective. You know, you, you put it in the food chain with an exponential effect and you roll that out nationwide. You know, this, nothing about this is sustainable. Yeah, very, very scary. Um, especially what you're saying about the food chain. So um, I, I think that's great advice, you know, as an individual level about love and support. And as far as a population and prevention level, do we need to stop this so there's not more um, need for um, for these kind of problems. So Becky, I want to thank you so, so much for your question. I'm inspired by the grand heart that you have in taking care of an enormous responsibility raising a child with various challenges caused by maternal drug use. And I really, I bless you and wish you and your family with health and an easy path as possible as you navigate a very complex medical system. And Dr. Stuart Reese, thank you so much. Um, you have reached across the ocean to look at American data, um, uh, world data to really sound the alarm about marijuana genotoxicity as it relates to cancer, birth defects, and oh my God, problems in our food chain. That's very scary. Um, and so I really hope we don't follow the path of tobacco. It's taken us 100 years for people to figure that reality out and that problem. And I, I, hear, I hope with the research and that you are, uh, are showing that, you know, that time frame of 100 years will be uh, smaller. Um, so really thank you for your research and your courage. Thank you so much, man. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to NMI, the National Marijuana Initiative, striving to dispel misconceptions about marijuana so citizens and policymakers can make well-informed choices. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.